we have witnessed the execution of the total ethnic cleansing of Gaza. My grandmother's house, we don't even know where it is because there's no landmarks anymore because the entire neighborhood is rubble. So-called cause in Israel's genocide of Gaza, Israel recommenced its onslaughts, an escalation of violence in the occupied West Bank. They have been rounding up Palestinian youth and kidnapping them. Over 180 individuals, all of the hostages that they freed were replaced by new Palestinians who were taken captive. The only reason some people even knew that there were Palestinian hostages is because Israeli hostages were taken in the last 56 years. Israel has taken 1 million Palestinians as hostage. Not a single person who has expressed care for Israeli hostages actually cares about the concept of a hostage because they do not give a shit that there are 7,000 Palestinian hostages. Scholars that have come out and said, oh yeah, it's, it's genocide now. That's also the next Israeli hashtag, genocide now. Go back to Norm Finkelstein, University of Waterloo. Half the crowd was Zionists. There was a time when they would be half the crowd. They are no longer half the crowd. What Ben Gurion said about Palestinians is true about Zionism. The old will die out and the young will forget. And then all that will be left is an archive of crimes. Yes. Michael, that is brilliant. I feel like we got to keep some of this for the pod. Like, No, that has to be the intro to the pod. Yeah. No, that right there is the, is the intro to the pod. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you ever thought Amy Schumer was funny. Yikes. <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional podcast per week. It's called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. A four-day so-called humanitarian pause in Israel's genocide of Gaza. We saw that pause extended by an additional two days and again by one day. And after the seven days of the cessation of bombardment in Gaza, during which there was an escalation of violence in the occupied West Bank, Israel recommenced its onslaught of Gaza. It's developed towards the execution of the total ethnic cleansing of Gaza. So it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. In this moment, we have witnessed the total destruction and loss of Gaza, the fact that my grandmother's house, we don't even know where it is because there's no landmarks anymore because the entire neighborhood is rubble. We, we don't know where it is. We can't, nobody can find it. The fact that all of Northern Gaza, almost all of it is just gone. And that was like the cosmopolitan part of Gaza, whereas like the South is more like rural and the South has like big refugee camps. But like the North was like the city. 
I don't think people realize that they literally destroyed all of Gazan society in a matter of six weeks. And that like right now, up until now, Hamas has released somewhere around 85 of the 240 hostages that they hold. With the latest releases, I think the figure is likely closer to 100 freed Israeli hostages and foreign nationals. In exchange, Israel freed around 180 Palestinian hostages, the majority of whom were women and children. But at the same time, we know that Israel has also, during this short humanitarian pause, taken many more Palestinians captive than it has released. They have been rounding up Palestinian youth and kidnapping them to the tune of over 180 individuals, which means that all of the hostages that they freed were replaced by new Palestinians who were taken captive. And this piece of information is crucial and is missing from all of the corporate media coverage that I have read about the hostage exchange. And we need to understand why it's so important because it speaks to the underlying symptom of military occupation, which is ever present, which allows Israel to kidnap Palestinians in a way that is almost silent. You don't even know that it's happening. Query how insane it is that the only reason some people even knew that there were Palestinian hostages is because Israeli hostages were taken. Yeah. Did the resistance kidnap more hostages or was it just the occupation mm, so there's not like a new batch of israeli hostages so like the people that they release like that'll be it as opposed to just like capturing new people to serve as prisoners in dungeons for nothing these people palestinians i think most of the people were charged with nothing i believe was the crime Indeed, a large percentage of the Palestinians who are currently being held by Israel have never been charged, and they're held in this process of administrative detention, which we've covered before, and it sounds innocuous, but it's actually very brutal and very sinister, and it allows Israel to kidnap any Palestinian, including any child, hold them for as long as they want, without ever providing any reason for, for, for kidnapping them, ever charging them with anything, or ever showing them any evidence. That is a hostage situation. There is no other way to describe it. And even if we're going to sit here and talk about those Palestinians that have been charged with something, we have to query two things. One, what are they being charged with and who are they being charged by? First, we know that Palestinians that are charged by Israel are charged with things like displays of national identity, posting a Palestinian flag on social media, attending a demonstration, allegations of rock throwing, which may or may not be true, allegations of supporting the resistance, which may or may not be true. Yeah, pretty tough Express stuff. Yeah, expressions of joy in Palestinian gathering are enough to, to be criminalized by the Israeli military occupation. And I'm, when I say that, I'm telling you, literally the Palestinian hostages who were released were ordered by Israel not to gather and not to express joy. And anyone who did could be arrested and taken. The IOF shot tear gas at some family members who were receiving some of the freed Palestinian captives. In the last 56 years of Israel's military occupation of the occupied West Bank and Gaza, Israel has taken 
one million Palestinians as hostage. In the last 20 years, Israel has taken 12,000 Palestinian children hostages. Before October 7th, there were an estimated 5,200 Palestinian hostages held by Israel, including children. Since October 7th, the number spiked to over 10,000 and now has been dropped to around 7,000 Palestinian hostages held by Israel. They only want us to be dead and they only want them to be alive. Nobody in good faith who cares about Israeli hostages gives a shit about Palestinian hostages. They don't care about hostages. They only care about Israelis. They don't care about uh, the concept of a hostage situation. Not a single person who has expressed care for Israeli hostages actually cares about the concept of a hostage taking. And that is clear because they do not give a shit that there are currently 7,000 Palestinian hostages. The condition that we're seeing released hostages in is a stark contrast, right? Like all of the Israelis who are being released, they're being released in good condition. They've got water bottles while Gaza has no water. They are fangirling over the resistance. They are there are guys who are like pointing them out like they're friends and high-fiving the dap scene around the world. One of my friends said it looked like they were about to start a group chat. You know, like it's the and then, you know, you see Palestinians being released from Israeli dungeons and they are a shell of who they once were. They're truly. in cast. They're in like both arms. The, yeah, are in a they're cast. brutalized. They're brutalized. They have broken limbs. They are like truly mentally traumatized. They tell tales of torture. I saw the story the other day of Zaina Abdo from occupied East Jerusalem. She was released in the hostage exchange. She was kidnapped by the Israeli occupation at 16 years old for posting a picture of a Palestinian flag on social media. And when she was interviewed following her release, she reported extreme torture, deprivation of food and water, beatings, the use of tear gas while detained, electrocution. Okay, this is a 16-year-old Palestinian girl in Israeli captivity. And nearly all Palestinian hostages are subject to torture, which is widely documented by human rights organizations, including children. On that point, Israel kidnaps between 500 and 700 Palestinian children every year, and I literally bet you did not even know that. Israel is the only country in the world to prosecute children in a military court system, which has a conviction rate of 99.7%. Obviously, this is not a real court. This is just an instrument of the settler colonial entity. Of course, the only way for there to be any justice is for the entire system, which allows the taking of Palestinian hostages to begin with, with such ease, to be entirely dismantled. It is not enough to release our hostages in a hostage exchange. You have to release them to freedom, not release them to occupation. Occupation, which means that at any moment they can be retaken from their families. Some have been retaken already, actually. That's on the West Bank side of things. We also saw two young boys be shot in cold blood in the occupied West Bank. One was nine, one was 15. No accountability, no outrage, no global discourse, no explanation even. Um, Israel is not even pressed to answer the question of why it killed these two young boys in the occupied West Bank, because it knows that it can. It's that incremental genocide, that incremental killing of Palestinians that it so routinely gets away with. It's invisible. I've never seen somebody be so unconcerned about murdering children, right? Have you ever seen that? 
John Kirby will get up there and he'll be like, I don't know if it's a genocide. It's like, well, luckily, nobody was asking your dumb ass, you fucking idiot. Nobody was like, are you sure? Because you're not the guy, right? You're the guy who's there to prevent any type of real movement from the American people on this issue. You're there to hold a damn metaphorical apartheid wall between information and the American people and just like people in general, you know what I mean? All people who want access to information. You're the guy who's like, mm, not going to have it. It's lucky nobody was asking you because 800 plus genocide scholars have already said that it may be genocide. Intent is the hardest thing to prove. But with all of the statements, the literal catalogs from Israeli officials, militaries, diplomats, it's a genocide. We all know it's a genocide. Besides, since that statement, which was made in October, it's been reinforced by a plethora of other scholars that have come out and said, oh, yeah, it's, it's genocide now. That's also the next uh, Israeli hashtag, genocide now. <laughs> that is so wrong. Okay. They're like, stand with us, genocide now. We knew that before the end of the so-called humanitarian pause, that Israel's plan was to pick up the bombardment with, quote, intensity. That's what Yoav Galan said. And much of the Israeli rhetoric was focused on how when the bombardment did pick up, they would focus on the south this time. Because as it turns out, after all, Hamas is not in the north. Ehud Olmert told us Hamas is actually in Khan Yunis in the south. So you know how we destroyed everything in the north and we shut down all of the hospitals and we led to the total collapse of the entire Gazan healthcare infrastructure in the north. Well, as it turns out, that was for absolutely nothing. Because now Hamas is in the south. That's what they say. How convenient, how absolutely convenient it is that after you ethnically cleanse the majority of Palestinian families from the north, you take a people who are already in the world's most densely populated piece of land and you smush them in half so that now the majority of them are in the south. Now you say, as it turns out, we are going to have to bombard the south. I just want to be very clear about how disastrous this plan is. Israel has already, in a matter of weeks, forcibly displaced 1.7 million Palestinians from their homes out of the 2.3 million people in Gaza, destroying much of their homes and making it impossible for them to go back. Anyone who's tried to go back to the north has been shot while trying to do so. And the pretense was the South was safe. Now, we know that the South was never safe. It was never safe a single day of the times when they said it was safe because Israel was bombing all parts of Gaza every single day of this genocide. Now, if Israel intends to focus its genocidal campaign on the area where it spent six weeks forcing everybody into, we know very well that the unavoidable outcome of this is going to be massive, massive killings of Palestinian families because people are literally on top of one another. The numbers are already horrific, but I have a deep fear that if they are allowed to continue this genocidal campaign, that what awaits us now in the days and weeks to come is going to be far worse than what we already saw. And what we already saw, understand that what we already saw is more devastating in scope than the Nekba of 1948. So if we stopped right here, if we already stopped right here, the trauma, the destruction, the killing, 
the displacement, the ethnic cleansing is already worse in scope than the Nakba of 1948, which killed 15,000 and displaced 750,000 Palestinians. As of today, 1.7 million are displaced. As of today, they have killed at least 20,000 Palestinians. But what we are being told is that not only is this not stopping today, but that it's actually going to be accelerated. And what is the reaction of the U.S. to all of this? The reaction of the U.S. is actually interesting. I read the other day that the Biden administration apparently advised the Israelis that they must operate with, quote, far greater precision in southern Gaza than they did in the north, which is actually a strange comment because it's an admission by the U.S. that Israel's bombardment campaign of the north was completely indiscriminate and led to the killing of civilians. You have to act with restraint. And you know what? The word restraint is really interesting because you know what it implies? It actually suggests that Israel just wants to kill. You have to restrain yourself though, Israel. Restraint. Do you see what I mean? Like, what is the imagery? It's an uncontrollable monster. Your music festival friends shot by the government. That's why they're going to bury all of the remains of the festival, all of the burnt cars. All what the is things? that about? They're going to shred the cars and bury the cars? Yeah. Don't you remember after 9-11 how the building materials were like captured and then sent overseas somewhere to be analyzed by right. the right people who were not the people <laughs> who were just there? <laughs> right. I, I don't remember that actually. Or the so. international media. Have, yeah, I mean. To, yeah, I, I don't know. Oh, you don't can remember, Google it I, right now. I'm a little bit of, I'm a bit of a 9/11 scholar, okay? <laughs> Google Building 7 everybody, okay? I, Start your journey there. <laughs> I want to talk about something. The New York Times report. Did you see this? I don't read that gossip rag. <laughs> well, 20 hours ago, they posted a major investigation. Headline reads Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. A blueprint reviewed by the Times laid out the attack in detail. Israeli officials dismissed it as aspirational and ignored specific warnings. I mean, this sounds exactly like 9-11. Right? That's why I brought it up. You were like, Building 7? I was like, wait a minute. I have something you'll be interested in. It's a 40-page document, which is essentially... Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th attack that was obtained by Israeli officials more than a year before it happened it contained documents, emails, and interviews. And the Israeli military and intelligence dismissed it, saying they'll never be able to pull this off. They have the paragliders in there? The whole thing was in there. The 40-page document outlined point by point the specific steps that were taken in the invasion on October 7th. It describes an assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around Gaza, take over Israeli cities and storm key military bases, including a division headquarters. Like it was the whole plan. You think they didn't read it because they can't read? They did read it. And then they were like, meh. Here's what the New York Times says. They said Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. They had the whole thing, and they ignored it. They ignored it. And what's interesting about this article is actually the comments. Because the comments... I encourage everyone to read the article. The comments are a bunch of Americans being like, why are we giving this incompetent state $4 billion a year? Mainstream discourse. 
This is what, look, listen to the top comment, 4,000 recommended. This is what happens when your leader is more focused on staying out of jail than doing his job. Uh-oh, we've entered the chat. The second most popular comment is Kyle from Boston, which says billions of dollars of American taxpayer money goes towards this incompetent military while our citizens remain homeless. Kyle from Boston, showing mutual aid vibes. Peter from Connecticut, third most popular comment, says the parallels to 9-11 are depressingly clear. An incompetent security apparatus asleep at the wheel, an ideological administration responding in a predictable way to drive the country further into the mud. No wonder we feel such kinship. A lot of people saying this report will be the end of Netanyahu. I think the apocalypse will be the end of Netanyahu. He's the Antichrist, is the joke. Thank you so much. Another one of the top comments... Everyone in Netanyahu's cabinet should be removed from office. They have Israeli and Palestinian blood on their hands, a spectacular failure which has cost tens of thousands of lives. They should be in prison. Yeah, even the people in Netanyahu's cabinet are hostages. <laughs> Look, fascinating article. I'm actually surprised that this came out as quickly, right? Because I don't think during 9-11 we necessarily got that information right away. We did, did we? Like we right did. away? Pretty much immediately. Oh, okay. I don't, re I don't remember the timeline. Yeah, because everybody was like, did BBC just report that Building 7 fell? It hasn't fallen yet. And then later it fell. And so we were like, ugh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. Are you looking all this up like you don't believe I, me? <laughs> Hilarious. A little bit. Hilarious. A little bit. This is not a 9-11 pod, you know? So I just want to keep this. <laughs> <laughs> you are so scared. Hilarious. I'm scared of 9-11. I am because you don't. Dude, you can't. The one thing you can't talk about more than Zionists is 9 11. Why? I've been talking about 9 11 for years. <laughs> all of the weird incongruencies, people who made money off of it, all of the incentives. There's a guy named Larry Silverstein who made a ton of money because he was insured he owned the buildings. He took out insurance like right before. I heard about that. You know who talks a lot about did. that? Vin. Vin's obsessed with 9 11. Okay. No, I'm just telling you. If you Vin, have Vin grew up in New Jersey. <laughs> Vin is a millennial who grew up in New York. He probably watched the towers fall from outside his fucking yes. pizzeria. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course he's somebody who's obsessed with 9-11. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying you have a fellow comrade in that. A lot of kinship. Okay, there's two things I want to talk about now, which neither of which are getting enough attention. One, the premature babies at Al Nasser Hospital. Do you understand that we watched with great interest the story of the 31 premature babies from Al-Shifa Hospital, which, by the way, they were originally 39, but eight of them were killed because of Israel's deprivation of electricity on Al-Shifa Hospital and the fact that they had to be removed from the incubators. And so they went from 39 to 31. And those 31 were then transferred to Egypt. And people watched, corporate media reported on it. Oh, the babies, they're leaving now. They're going to Egypt. Nobody asked the question of why they have to leave in the first place. Like, does anybody realize that the only reason they have to leave is because Israel has a, is carrying out a siege of electricity on Gaza? And if Israel just stopped banning electricity on Gaza, that these premature babies could stay in their incubators that if israel wasn't going to siege and attack al-shifa hospital these babies could just stay in their incubators like 
we are asking all the wrong questions. Instead of like following the premature baby's path to Egypt, we should ask why they have to be moved in the first place. Because you know how insane it is to move a premature baby from an incubator, a place where they're never supposed to exit until they're healthy enough to like go home. Anyway, the world at least paid attention to that. It's as simple as the occupier's responsibility to turn the electricity back on to the occupied people. It's like very basic stuff. Same thing with the water. Just turn it back on. There's no actual reason that you could justify withholding food, water, and medicine from people. Unless the purpose is genocide. To further deprive people of the things that they need so desperately in this moment. The most vulnerable people who are without even the basic things. And it's like, you're going to deprive those people of water. You're going to deprive them of the ability to like heal with medicine. Heal from what? Like, not only are you airstriking them and causing them horrific injuries, but then you're saying, oh, no, 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 they're going to sew you up without anesthesia. Oh, there's not going to be any antibiotics. Oh, there's not going to be any bandages for your burn wounds. Yeah, there are pregnant women giving birth right now without any anesthesia. Like, it's real medieval shit. Right. But here's the the critical thing is that any coverage of the fact that there's no food, the fact that there's no water, the fact that there's no electricity, which does not tell you that Israel is responsible for that because they are the ones preventing the entry of food, water, and electricity like they said they would. Yoav Gallant said, we're fighting human animals. We will act accordingly. There will be no food, water, electricity. He said it. And then they stopped allowing any food, water, electricity in. They cut off the water. They cut off the electricity. And they stopped allowing trucks in. And because Gaza is heavily dependent on humanitarian aid to survive, because remember, the underlying condition is that it is a prison. Underlying condition is that it's been a concentration camp where it survives only because of intervention of the outside world because Israel has cut it off. If any coverage speaks to that condition of there's no food, water, electricity, but doesn't tell you Israel's the reason, that is a criminal manipulation of what is taking place right now on the ground. Because everybody knows that there's no food because Israel's not allowing their food to go in. Everybody knows the trucks are sitting outside of the Rafah crossing with food that is perishable, that is literally rotting because Israel won't let it in and is only letting a trickle of humanitarian aid enter. And that people are starving. The people are starving already. They're starving. People have already died from starvation. Anyway, I digress. The original point I wanted to make was about the Al-Nasr hospital premies. So we didn't ask the right questions with the Al-Shifa hospital premies. We were happy that some of them made it out alive and they're being treated in Egypt, most of them without their families, who even knows if they even have families anymore, because many of these children are the only survivors in their families of the airstrikes. But let's talk about Al-Nasr Hospital. During the humanitarian pause, a reporter went into Al-Nasr Hospital in the north, which is where Joe Gaza 93 works. That's where he is a pediatric intensive care unit nurse. And a video was posted by this journalist showing him entering the very same unit where Joe works and finding 
five premature babies who were dead and decomposing in their beds. Now, I messaged Joe and I said, tell me this isn't true. He said, I can't. It is true. It is true. I spoke to the director of my department. And as it turns out, when I was forced to flee, when I was forced to leave Nasser Hospital with the majority of the staff, with the families, with the patients who could get up and leave by the Israelis because they sieged Nasser Hospital just like they sieged Al Shifa Hospital, just like they sieged Rantisi Hospital. And they forced the healthcare workers and the patients out. The doctors and the parents and the families of those preemies tried their hardest to stay as long as they could. The Israeli occupation ground forces told them you have to leave them. And there was a exchange about whether or not the Red Cross would come and take these babies. What we know is that the Israeli occupation never allowed the Red Cross to come, but it's not even clear if the Red Cross even attempted to come. And so, following the siege and attack on Al Nasser Hospital, the Israeli occupation forces left the hospital with those preemies in their beds who were left to suffocate, to die of starvation, to die of dehydration. Joe told me that there was absolutely no way to get them out because the Israelis had bombed the oxygen tanks of Al Nasser Hospital. There was no electricity. There was no, they're on mechanical ventilators and they need oxygen tanks and they need electricity, two things which were not available. So unless the Red Cross was going to be responsible for transporting them and providing electricity and oxygen tanks, there was no way out because the Israelis bombed the oxygen tanks. So I'm wondering, why is it that I have only seen this story in Middle East Eye, The New Arab, and a handful of other independent news sources? Why is it that the corporate media has not picked this story up? I am utterly baffled why it is that one story about preemies will be published And another story about preemies will not be published, but I sat there thinking about it and I realized I know exactly why. Because the story about the Al-Shifa preemies was spun to make Israel look like the good guy. Well, they allowed them out. Nobody's asking the real question, the only important question, which is why they have to leave in the first place. I think the real question is, why is Israel fighting hospitals? But truly... It was reported on in a way that was like, oh, they've arrived and okay, okay, okay. People are like, oh, okay, I can get on with my day. They, they made it. They made it out safe. Nobody will touch the Al Nasser Hospital preemie story because it's an indefensible story. There's nothing to say here. Just when I think things can't get worse, they do every single time. How are we supposed to feel about that? I mean, really, honestly, how are we supposed to feel about that? If you think that we are supposed to feel anything but the deepest, most burning rage that a human soul can feel, then you don't think we're human. Then you think that we are inhuman and therefore do not experience human emotion the way that you would. I am maybe out of all of the stories coming out of this genocide most deeply disturbed by the story of the Al-Nasser hospital preemies and how little attention it got and how atrocious of a story it is and how, how revealing it is about the nature of the Israeli occupation and its intentions.
But you know what? I'm not even done. I have another story I want to share with you before we sign off today. And this comes from Mondo Weiss. The death march that took place over a period of a number of days during which the Palestinians were forcibly displaced from the north to the south on the so-called safe passage of Salah ad-Din Street, where the Israeli snipers and tanks were positioned all up and down one of the main streets in Gaza and were pulling people, harassing them, strip-searching them, stealing their belongings, beating them, torturing them, kidnapping them. But the story I'm about to tell is not about any of those injustices. It's a story about children being sniped while they're being held by their parents who are being forcibly expelled from their homes. The article says, one incident I heard from multiple people that I met at an UNRWA school recounts the story of a woman carrying her child and walking along Salah Haddin Road. Her child would cry loudly as she carried him. Multiple people told me, all repeating the same details and recounting the same sequence of events that would follow. A soldier, annoyed by the child's screeching, sniped at him from a distance and shot him in the head as his mother carried him. The soldier then picked up his megaphone and ordered her to throw him by the side of the road and keep walking. In utter shock, the woman wailed and cried, but eventually was forced to obey the soldier's orders at gunpoint, who surrounded her from the side and were also perched on top of the tank. Everyone told me the same thing, that the woman was forced to set down her lifeless child and continue screaming and crying the entire way. That wasn't the only story of this kind that I heard. Muhammad al-Ashqar, a refugee in an UNRWA school in Khan Yunus, told me that one of his relatives was carrying his four-year-old daughter on his shoulders, and a soldier sniped her from afar and killed her. In the same fashion, they ordered him over the megaphone to cast her aside and keep marching south. He too had no choice or else he and the rest of his family would be shot as well. These stories are being confirmed by the waves of refugees who are still coming in from the north, reporting that they saw dozens of corpses littering the safe passage designated by Israel, both old and young, rotting on the side of the road. Fresh refugees who came in the day before yesterday reported that some of the bodies had begun to be eaten by stray animals. There were more details. The Israeli army had given fleeing refugees strict instructions. Don't pick anything up from the ground if you drop it. Don't turn around or look anywhere but south. Don't speak to anyone with you. Don't disobey the rules of any soldier. You will be shot if you break these rules. Zionism is indefensible. And you know, we know these stories are true because I watched, I spent hours a day watching the stories of Mu'taz of Plessia, of Bissan, of all of the Palestinian journalists on the ground who documented the expulsion on Salah Haddin Road. And I saw with my own eyes the corpses littered on the road that the Palestinians were in mass walking on. And you could see corpses of all ages. But what we didn't know was how the corpses got there. When we were watching it play out in real time, you saw these dead bodies and you see this mass of people that is being pushed and you know, shuffled in one direction. 
south. We just didn't know the exact story of how they got there. And now Mondo Weiss has published the story. There's nothing to say. I don't have anything left to say. I thought we were going to end the episode after Zionism is indefensible. We can. We can. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out our full episodes and sources, www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. And look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have as good a day as you can. We have just seen a four-day humanitarian pause to the genocide, which was... There's an ambulance in your background. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm going to wait the ambulance out. Yeah, you know who couldn't get anywhere with ambulances is Palestinians because the Israelis destroyed their roads. And they bombed the ambulances. Hard to drive once you're bombed. And there's no roads.